Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sodia. Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Great to see you again. Uh, boy, the weeks are just flying by in 2021 here. Yes, they are, aren't they? We're on to episode 22. Quite incredible. And today, we have a very timely episode, and we're very fortunate to have the guest we have with us today. And the timeliness is because last week, a major corporation made what I think is a groundbreaking announcement in terms of uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today. They came out with the statement that we're going to help build a more equitable and inclusive society and actually put some meat behind that. In fact, their CEO said and quoted in this, uh, in this announcement, decisive and collective action is needed to build a society that promotes cohesion, embraces diversity, nurtures talent, offers opportunities for everyone, and helps to improve livelihoods. And today we have someone who's an important part of that work, and that's Patty Hull, the VP of the Future of Work. Now I have job envy and title envy when I hear that, the VP of the Future of Work. Hi, Patty. <laughs> hey, Timothy. Uh, hey, Raj. Great to be on the show and yeah, looking forward to telling you a bit about what it means to be the VP Future of Work. Ah, love it. Love it. So maybe we could begin with just maybe an overview of the announcement and the, the main parts of it that, that Unilever is committing to take action on over the coming years. Yeah, great. Thanks, Timothy. We'll do. I think um, the other thing our CEO, Alan Jope, uh, said when he was making that announcement is that there's two great crises affecting the world at the moment. You know, one is around climate change and the other is around social inequality. And uh, last year, actually, we made some commitments around uh, the climate um, and the natural environment and how we're going to look after that in our operations. And this year, we felt it was really appropriate that we talked about our social commitments, what we're doing around that social inequality space. And it does also all relate back to our real multi-stakeholder approach uh, to doing business, which I think fits in well with the conscious capitalism uh, approach. You know, we believe that when we look after our people, our consumers, our customers, our suppliers, you know, then the stakeholders will will benefit um, and, and will do well by doing good. So this is yeah, a bit of an expression of that. Um, and there are three main commitments uh, that we're making. One around raising living standards. And this really relates to a commitment to work together with our, our suppliers and everyone who directly provides goods and services to Unilever to uh, ensure everyone's paid a living wage across our value chain. Um, which uh, is, is more difficult than uh, it, it would seem. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done there. Secondly, around creating opportunities through inclusivity. And again, this is using the power of Unilever through our advertising to make sure we are um, 
using positive role models and all our adverts that are representative of all the communities we serve. And also working with our suppliers to ensure that we are working with a really diverse range of suppliers and helping support small and medium businesses to grow. And then my space, preparing people for the future of work, big commitments there really around making sure people have got the skills and experiences and, and opportunities to work how and where they, they want to in, in, in flexible and new ways. Um, this construct that we've had with us for a long time of the 40-hour, 40-week, 40-year working life is, is due a, a remodel, shall we say. Uh, and I think uh, our thinking around preparing people for the future of work is all about that, making sure that we can help people thrive in, uh, in, in a changing, uh, changing world of work. Love it. Love it. And um, of course, I said I have title envy. And so I'm curious, of course, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, how does one get to be the VP of the future of work? Tell us the story. How did you get there? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll take you back to a conversation I had in around uh, 2015 uh, with my then boss, uh, Lena Nair, who's, who's now our CHRO. And I'd just come off a leadership program which helped me discover my purpose. Uh, and this is a program that we've had running across Unilever uh, for a number of years and, and in earnest uh, been spreading it around the organization the last three years. Uh, we've had 57,000 people uh, go through it uh, so far in the organization, which um, is really amazing. It's probably one of our um, most demanded and, and most successful programs. And the reason it is because it just spends time on you as a person, giving you that opportunity to think about yourself, what makes you unique, what are the unique skill sets that you've got and strengths that you can uh, bring to, to your roles. And so it helps you navigate the kinds of work that you would uh, thrive in. And so I'd been on this program and came up with this uh, rather nifty title, I thought, for my purpose, which was... Um, to bring the essence of Pollyanna into the room. And uh, Pollyanna, I think, is in the English dictionary now, is someone who's excessively optimistic. It's based on a, on a story about a young girl called Pollyanna who, who plays the joy game with her father. And I realized that throughout my life, I'd tried to be someone similar to that. I'd been inspired by that Pollyanna story. And I found that I always loved injecting energy, enthusiasm, joy into any conversations or situations I was in. I, I struggled to see the negative. You know, I'm always trying to find the positive, uh, the silver lining in something. But I'd also spent some time in my corporate career maybe hiding that, that part of myself a bit. I didn't think it was appropriate, not professional uh, enough. And going through that workshop really made me realize, actually, um, being who, who I am, who I'm created to be is so important. People appreciate that. That's what makes me unique. Yeah, it makes me have a difference. So newly emboldened with that, I went to see Lena and I said, right, if you want to get the best from me, put me in uh, jobs and situations where I can motivate and inspire people, where I can design uh, interventions that help people see things differently from different perspectives and so innovate uh, and drive uh, different ways of working. And so to her credit, Lena uh, agreed and uh, put me into a role uh, where I was looking after leadership development in Unilever so that I could motivate and inspire our leaders. And obviously in that role, I was also in touch with a lot of the latest thinking and trends and came across this idea around the future of work and uh, 
the fourth industrial revolution and, and, and what's coming. And I thought, wow, this is a fantastic area. I'd like to actually spend even more of my time in helping our business and our people think about how we can respond to this and actually be proactive in, in figuring out uh, what we do about this. So I wrote a job description for it, uh, handed it in to Lena. And again, I must give her credit after a few chats. She said, right, let's make you the VP future of work and make sure that you create and lead these social commitments for us. So yeah, that's, that's the story. Wow, I love it. I love it. I love that you're finding your sweet spot that way, you know, declaring, here's my purpose. Here's the things that really excite me in the world. And how can I bring my talent and capability to the table to define a role and actually write your own job description and then be in a position where you can have such a big impact on things. I just love that. It's a great story, Patty. Thank you very much for that. No worries. And the beauty of the purpose workshops, it works for everyone sort of in that way. You know, it just helps you navigate things from a different angle and uh, we're very passionate about that we also think sorry just quickly on the future of work that people spend a lot of time talking about how we need to reskill and upskill people because robots are coming and all of this and it's a quite a scary sort of uh, scenario that gets painted um, and we also think it's a scenario that treats people sort of as widgets like that they just need to be reskilled or upskilled and then they'll be okay but people are far more complex than that, as, as we all know, and, and need some motivation and, and sort of the, the will to, to think about this whole reskilling, upskilling journey, if, if that's something they're going to go on. And we think spending a lot of time with people focused on purpose first mm. to understand what they really want from life, their career, the sort of skills and things that they're interested in is such an important starting point because then you can go and look at the, the reskilling, upskilling opportunities with that frame in mind. And we had a, a woman recently who, who we were working on with this. She was actually um, looking at moving out of the organization and, and said to us that she wanted to do uh, dog training, which we thought was quite a big leap from the sort of professional corporate role that she was doing, but then discovered that she had this massive passion for dogs, which would go to regular shows with her dog and all this kind of thing and realize actually that is the kind of training that we should invest in with her because that is going to lead to her living her purpose and she's more likely to be successful in that space than if we try to box her into some other corporate role. So, yeah, it's a really powerful thing. I love it. I'd like to uh, go back to the living wage initiative because I do think that is huge. Uh, as you said, Alan identified that as, as, a, as a crisis for humanity at the level of the climate crisis. And I agree with that. I think this is sort of the, uh, you know, the tinderbox behind all the populist movements and all the unrest and everything else that we have seen. So now Unilever is not new to this, right? Unilever has been uh, practicing that for at least five, six years. How far back does it go, the, the living wage? Yeah, I mean, it goes back a while. I don't know the exact date, but what I do know is that all of our employees are paid a living wage. So we have uh, verified that across our entire, um, everyone who's, who's full-time employees of Unilever. But it, it's been work we've had to do over those those years. Again, it's, it's not an easy uh, journey, actually. So making this commitment now to um, go after it in our entire value chain 
is, is one of the reasons we've given ourselves 10 years to do it, so till 2030. And we know it's going to take a lot of advocacy uh, as probably a starting point because we need to work together with governments, to, together with our, our suppliers, uh, and help find ways in which to do this again, still in, a, in, in an equitable way. One of the debates we had internally, also before making this commitment, was that, well, what are the potential negative consequences of something like this? Because one of the risks was you ask your suppliers to do this, they just automate their operations. And those people who, who were working now actually have no livelihood uh, because they just get automated out of the business because suppliers think, well, that's, that's an easier way for me to, to get around this. So we need to really work with our suppliers, take this in a holistic way to help um, ensure that we can do this without negative externalities, do it appropriately, do it in the right way, with the right level uh, in, in each country. So it, it really is a complex systemic change. Um, yeah, that's going, going to take time, but, but what an exciting uh, a journey to go on and, and worthwhile one. And we did have a, a session with a, a number of our suppliers about this, especially our large suppliers. And they're all up for it. And they said, please just work with us. Um, let's work together uh, to make this thing happen. So, yeah, that's going to be the plan. Great. And then on the, the purpose work, which I've never seen any of the company scale uh, purpose the way Unilever has. You said 50,000 people have gone through that. Is that all done uh, with technology or is it actually a live experience with people when they go through the purpose uh, discovery process? Yeah, it's a live experience. Uh, it's all done by internal people. So we run train-the-trainer workshops and our own people facilitate the workshops, which is, which is really great. And it used to be always face-to-face -face, uh, until COVID hit. And uh, then we, we, again, had a few debates internally whether this would actually work virtually or not. We did a couple of pilots and realized, actually, it works just as well <laughs> in a virtual environment as it did face-to-face. -face. So we've pivoted, and, and now we run the workshops uh, virtually. Um, and that's actually enabled us to even accelerate um, the implementation uh, across the world. So that's been very exciting. But yeah, it's all about, it's a very intimate workshop. You spend most of the workshop in a small group of four people sharing your stories, you know, about hobbies you used to have, uh, what you used to enjoy doing as, as a kid, um, you know, your proudest moment, uh, your crucible moment, these kinds of things. And through those stories, we find the common theme that's running through all of them that alludes to yeah, something that's, that's unique about you and how you handle these different things. So I'm assuming that's not open to outside people, but is that something, the methodology that you share with other companies if they want to do it as well? Yes, I was actually just on a call today with our chief learning officer and a whole bunch of chief learning officers and other organizations where um, Tim Munden, who is our, our CLO, was offering uh, to run a train-the-trainer for this, uh, to, to take it beyond uh, our walls uh, and, and share with others. So yes, we are actively looking at that. And also as part of our youth employment commitment, one of the things uh, we do there is, is that we run purpose workshops uh, for the young people who, who, who want to come in and, and get some experience because we really see that as a key enabler of helping people, again, on, on their own journey towards uh, employment, that if we can start with purpose, help build that confidence, build that clarity uh, on direction, then they're going to choose the right uh, sort of opportunities. So is that the 10 million young people? That's the program. So let's that's talk about that. A little bit. 10 million so young these people. Are, 
what age is, and then they don't have to have any connection to Unilever, right? They could be just fresh, what, high school graduates, college? Yeah, what absolutely. So uh, 16 to 25-year-olds is, is uh, the, the group where we're targeting. So yeah, sort of school leavers to, to university uh, graduates or college or, or whatever, or, or not in education, uh, employment or training. You know, that's actually who we're really targeting is, is those who haven't had the opportunity for any of that. Um, and we're seeking to do that through a number of ways. We've already got a lot of initiatives going on uh, around the world. But one thing that we're trying to do is, is really scale that impact. And we're using, at the moment, we're piloting a platform in South Africa called Level Up, which is an online platform where we try to bring together a number of these, these things. So whether it's a purpose workshop that so we run virtually through the platform, we're sharing a lot of great training content through the, the platform, not only purpose, but also you know, things like interview skills, but also digital literacy and also some vocational skills training around sales and, and that kind of thing. We've partnered actually with Microsoft and Pearson at the moment to provide some accredited training as well so they can get that kind of thing through there. And then we provide volunteering opportunities through the platform. So there's a lot of research showing that uh, if you're not in education, employment, or training, actually volunteering, again, helps build confidence, build skills, experience that can then help you when, when applying for jobs. And because our brands are doing so much good work in you know, various social uh, areas, we, we've, we've got a lot of opportunities for young kids to contribute into some of that work with our brands. Um, and so we promote that on the site and our NGOs that, that we connect with. And then finally, we provide an opportunity for them to sort of register in a talent pool so we can push them opportunities uh, around work experiences, be that part-time, full-time, internships, apprenticeships. And we're looking to expand also to our suppliers and distributors, have them also promote those sorts of things through the platform so we can widen the talent pool for everyone. And one of the things we learned in South Africa is um, – Launching this data is really expensive in South Africa. It's one of the most expensive countries in the world. So, again, one of the things that opened up to us is the need to partner with others to make this thing work. Otherwise, no one was going to come to the site, uh, you know, if, uh, if data was an issue. So, we partnered also with the local telecoms providers to make sure that access on the site is for free, that the data used on the site is, is for free. So, yeah, we're trying to use this combination of sort of an online approach together with a lot of the offline stuff that we're doing. We're sort of mirroring the two to try and use that to expand the, the scale and reach of our, of our youth employment uh, programs and particularly targeting those not in education, employment and, and training. I love it. I love it. And I, I love the other aspect you were talking about, which is finding new ways of working in the sense that... Um, you know, that there's this idea of the gig economy. And right now, the whole idea of the gig economy, there's a there's a shadow side to it, right? There's this, yeah, you work for Uber, but you're not really an employee and they don't necessarily have to treat you well and there aren't benefits. And so there's a lot of movement around gig economy kind of thing, but it's not at all clear that that's really, in the end, a good thing for society. So tell us a little bit more about what you're trying to do around that whole concept of, of new ways of working and, and making the gig economy relevant to a large company like Unilever. Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Timothy. And in fact, it's one of the things that got me hooked on the future of, of work and this need to make a difference here because uh, 
yeah, it was about three years ago where we were having an, an HR team meeting and Nick Dalton, um, who, who I've uh, sort of taken over from on this future of work journey, was talking passionately about this issue that the gig economy gives you this flexibility, but no security. And full-time employment gives you lots of security and no flexibility, but there's nothing in between. It's this binary relationship. And how can that be, you know, the only way in which, which we can work? And so he passionately advocated for us to really think hard about how we can create a third option of flexibility and security. Mm. And, and that's really what our, our second commitment there is all about, pioneering new employment models to give our people flexible uh, employment options. Um, and one of those is, is something we've been piloting in the UK for the last uh, year or so and rolling out in 10 countries this year, um, something we call U-Work where uh, employees uh, don't have a job title anymore. They work on assignments at Unilever. So when you ask them, you know, oh, you work at Unilever, what do you do? They'll say, well, uh, I work on assignments. I do all sorts of different projects, whatever interests me and is in line uh, with my purpose. And so essentially what happens is they get a, a monthly retainer Plus, they get an amount for, for the assignments that, that they work on, which, which has a pro rata amount in it for benefits and, and pension and that kind of thing. And um, so they, they get this halfway house that they get the flexibility of working on assignments and choosing which assignments uh, they want to work on. But they also get the security that they're not just getting you know, the, the base pay. They, are getting, they even get sort of a bonus payment uh, in, in terms of the projects that they work on. And so we've found this has just been so appealing to a broad range of people, people who are nearing retirement, who want to, you know, gracefully move on to lower hours of work and, and just choose what, what they want to work on. Youngsters who just joined, who wanting more flexibility, maybe want to have a side hustle or do that sort of thing. And then also the working parents, as we all know, who are struggling with homeschooling and millions of different things at the moment, this gives them a wonderful opportunity to pick and choose a bit more what they work on. And, and I had someone who's, who's uh, part of you work, work uh, on a project for me last year. Um, and, and, it was, and she's a working mum and was doing it so that she could have that flexibility. But she said what was also great was this whole ability to pick and choose mm. what you work on and that you really choose the stuff that you're most passionate about and then that you really focused, you know, the issue for a lot of us who are full-time employees that you have so many things to work on that you never really managed to dedicate time to really delivering uh, what you want to. And she said, it's the complete opposite when you're in new work. It's just focus on one thing and, and nail it. Um, and so we really see it as a big opportunity for us as a business as well, that uh, through growing a new work uh, sort of population, we can have people more dedicated, more flexible, able to work in agile ways, delivering on projects and in a far more focused way. So there's a real business benefit for us in, in this as well. Well, I want to take that word you used, agile. You know, I sometimes use agile, teal, organization of the future, a lot of different labels for it. But, but I'm really curious that as you start with the you work, it really has profound implications for how you organize work within the business itself in terms of moving to more assignment-based versus roles and responsibilities, business as usual. It means being able to be more resilient and all those things. So I'm, I'm curious, what are the other things that are needing to change in the business to, take, to, to make you work actually fit in a way that, uh, that can be productive for everybody? 
That's a great question, Timothy. And uh, yeah, we're definitely not there yet in terms of being fully agile and flexible. We know that's where we need to go. As you say, it builds resilience and the organization builds resilience in, in people, enables us to focus on, on the right things at the right time and scale up and scale down as we need to. Um, but like any organization, we've been in this fixed way of working, the nine-to-five job, you know, the 40-hour, 40-week, 40-year um, construct for such a long time that it takes people a while to get their heads around the fact that, you know, we really need to start deconstructing jobs into tasks, into assignments, into skills uh, that are needed, really get up our game in, in that space. And in fact, strengthen that muscle. I think that's something all our managers are going to need to learn to get far more fluent at. It's yeah. much easier just to say, yeah, I need a person to do all this stuff yeah. uh, and, and, yeah. and put that their job description and off they go. It's far harder to go, right, okay, I need these various assignments. I need people with these sorts of skills, work on it for this amount of time uh, and, and off I go. So the big shift uh, is, is really in that space, I see, is deconstructing roles yeah, and getting line managers comfortable that yeah. I don't have to have this army of people who reports into me yeah. uh, anymore, that I must take this abundance mindset to resource, that I could get people from anywhere, be they students, be they you workers, be they people. We've got a thing called Flex Experiences and Unilever, an internal marketplace. People can spend 20% of their time working on various projects how do I get people from, from there? So, um, yeah, still lots of work to be done and mindsets to be shifted, but uh, we're on the journey. So, uh, yeah, we, we'll get there. Yeah, I think that's really key because there's two elements of what you talked about. One is sort of the operating model, how we actually organize work and think about organizing work needs to shift. And at the same time, you need a different kind of leader <laughs> and that leadership mindset and the way they lead and how they think of themselves as leaders and then you put those things together and, you know, now you have a new way of, of actually being able to operate the business, which then enables the, something like you work to really, really come to life. So I think it's fascinating that, uh, you know, part of your background is, you know, leadership development. and <laughs> It's no coincidence you're in that role. That's it. That's it. Lena has got a very uh, far reaching uh, mind into the future to figure out, yeah, how to place the right people, the right uh, kind of roles. Yeah. Now with, you know, I, I, I've lost track of it. What is there? There's 50 different sort of brands or business units within Unilever or something like that order of magnitude. Is that right? In terms of, uh, you know, Ben and Jerry's and Dove. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, a, a lot more actually, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and business units. Yeah. Yeah. Three main business units, kind of food and refreshments, yeah. home care and, and hygiene and, and then beauty and personal care as we call it. Yeah. That's a lot of change. And, you know, how you run something like Dove, you know, versus Ben and Jerry's and the speed at which those organizations are ready to embrace this model. How are you, how are you managing that given that you probably have some folks, you know, Ben and Jerry's pick one, you know, right on the cutting edge already. And this is sort of, and you probably have some others on the other end of the spectrum who maybe you know aren't, aren't you know, don't have that kind of brand positioning anyway? They're they're on a journey. So how do you manage across such a vast portfolio? Uh, my approach is always to very much go where the energy is. Uh, exactly as you said, where you've got a team who are keen on this, who uh, up for it, 
then just give them everything you've got because then you can create a bright spot. And, and I'm, I'm a big proponent of that whole sort of switch methodology, appreciative inquiry. If we can get a few bright spots in the organization, then people believe far more that it's possible because it's working in Unilever. You know, somewhere in Unilever, it's actually working. So therefore, it's easier for me to uh, adopt it. So in fact, next week, I'm joining a couple of calls with our Australia and New Zealand leadership team who all over this and super excited about uh, the future of work. They're piloting the four-day week in New Zealand this year, uh, but they're constantly looking for new ways in which they can you know, move to a more agile, flexible organization, do what's right for their people. So I'm going to spend yeah, a couple of early mornings uh, uh, my time uh, chatting with them about what they can do uh, further to, to do this. And so, yeah, my big approach is just to try and find more and more of those bright spots where the energy is and, and go there. That's the only way you can't sort of mandate stuff in, in Unilever. I learned that a long time ago. Uh, there's too many bright people who've got their own ideas, who are in different contexts. Um, so you can provide some global guidelines, but then just let, let it flourish in, in the local context. Wow. You know, I have to say, we've always been fans of Unilever for many years. And this company is just taking it to another level. It feels like, you know, it's like how much good is possible for one company to bring into the world and to catalyze a change in the system is really very inspiring. I just want to say Unilever is a gift uh, to the world, really. There's so much that you guys are doing that uh, others can learn from and emulate and build upon. So I just commend, uh, commend the organization for all of these uh, extraordinary things that you're, you're piloting and trying and taking risks. It's not easy. And a company of that scale to be that innovative and pioneering, I think is tremendous. Yeah. Oh. And, and I'm curious, you know, as you were having that discussion and you were, you were, you know, teeing all this up, how did the discussion come in around how that affects, you know, our performance as a business? Because at some point, you know, it is doing well and doing good. And it's not an either or, right? It's not, a, it's a polarity. We're managing to try to get the best of both. But that means you do have to look at the other side, which is, you know, business performance and, um, and, you know, in a sense, you know, in a sense, make the business case for this. So I'm curious what the flavor of the discussion was around that when you were having that conversation. Another fantastic question, Timothy. And, and for sure, we have those debates uh, internally. Is this the right thing to do? Is there enough connection to the business? Uh, you know, how, how does this work both for the business and the social impact. So everything does you know, go through that lens. And I'll, I'll just share one uh, example of that when, when we were presenting these commitments to our senior leadership team. There was a bit of a question around uh, youth employability and, and how much does that relate to, to our business you know, and, and what we're doing and, uh, and shouldn't that be left to, to others uh, to do? Um, and so we have business cases, you know, that we rewrite uh, for, for all of these things. So I went around peddling, you know, the business case to our leadership team, talking about the importance of um, broadening uh, our scale and reach among young people, how they can help us in bringing in more diversity of thought into the organization, how it can help us in terms of if we are equipping young people ahead of time before they've even joined Unilever or our 
distributors or suppliers, but equip them with some, some critical 21st century skills. How, if we do bring them into our organizations, they can hit the ground running that much faster. You know, we've got, and we've done this in a few uh, countries already. So I had some of the data to prove it. When I was in China uh, working there, we had a program where we would bring uh, people directly in from colleges and, and universities to shadow our salespeople. Um, so they just literally shadowed them. We did give them, you know, a, a small stipend and that sort of thing. But the idea was that they got to learn on the job and then as different salespeople would leave, so they could slot into those positions. And we would run a whole training program alongside that. The interesting thing was in China, we ran it in different uh, regions and different regions approached it slightly differently, which was actually perfect. We hadn't, you know, we'd given them one methodology, but they'd all done it a bit differently. But then all the data came back and we saw that the regions that had invested the most in the training and development sort of up front and then the shadowing and all that had the best productivity, had the lowest attrition rates uh, and all that kind of thing. So Fortunately, you know, I gathered this data and we'd use that to, to promote our business case around, you know, youth employability and, and why it's so important. So all of these commitments, you know, the living wage one is a huge one. It's, it's really going to take a, a lot of work and, and effort. But again, if we can't operate in a sick society at the end of the day, you know, we, we are selling products out there to you, know, you and I and, 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 and as many people as, as we can. And if they don't have a living income or a living wage, you know, they're never going to be able to afford our products as well. So there is a real business reason uh, behind all of these things um, as well. So, but it's certainly a, a debate that, that rages, uh, a good, strong debate to make sure that we're doing uh, the right things, doing the rights you know, by our business, by our people, by our multi-stakeholders, you know, we're considering all, all those angles. And, and I think it makes us a better business that we have those debates, actually, and, and that we're pushing ourselves to consider these different uh, perspectives rather than just a you know, single-minded uh, focus on just what our corporate is, is all about. Maddie, you'd like to uh, take you back to your, uh, your, your youth uh, growing up in South Africa in a pretty momentous uh, period in our history. Would you have some memories to share and how those experiences may have shaped you in terms of uh, your own persona and the kind of work that fulfills you? Yes, Raj. Uh, I almost don't know where to begin. I mean, uh, as you say, uh, South Africa was uh, in the throes of apartheid when, when I was growing up. Uh, in fact, uh, apartheid only ended just after I left school. And in fact, only in my final year of school did we have some uh, black kids join our school. Prior to that, it had been all white uh, boys' school. So a few things have, have struck me from that time. One was, as a kid growing up in that environment, what was scary was that that was normal. Uh, I didn't know anything else, so uh, I just assumed that was the way things are. And it's, I've always therefore I had this mind of really questioning and being curious about uh, constructs and what governments are telling you and, and that kind of thing, you know, but definitely this uh, inquiring mind not to accept just what's uh, put out uh, to you. I think that's, that, that's the first thing. I think the second thing, and, and again, it relates to this shift in perceptions. We did an exercise uh, soon after I left school uh, at university, uh, a sort of a, a leadership program where um, we, we were told we were doing the race of life. 
And uh, a group of us, white kids, Indian kids, black kids, colored kids, were all put on the starting line. And we were told the finish line is over there and that's your first job. And we had to answer a series of questions. If you answered yes, you took a step forwards. If you answered no, you took a step backwards. And the questions were things like, did you grow up with a computer in your home? Uh, did you have access to books? Uh, were both your parents married? You know, so did you come from a single household or, or, or dual parents? And all those sorts of uh, questions. And um, it, was, it was a terrible exercise in that all the white kids ended up at the finish line. Uh, and quite a few of the black kids were behind the, the starting line uh, by the time we finished. Um, and it just really hit me you know, between the eyes. You, you, you spend a lot of time in these environments where everyone's saying, oh, well, you know, everyone's equal now, so it's, it's all fine. But you realize there's still so much systemic inequality going on uh, around you that it's, it's never sort of finished uh, the journey in that space. And I think those experiences have, have really, uh, it was one of the reasons I joined Unilever again, because I saw it's a company that is trying to do well by doing good. And I, I kind of felt that, yeah, we, we need to do this through corporates because they got the money, you know, to, to make a difference and that sort of thing. But that no matter what I did in my career, I would always be trying to find a way to, to address these sorts of issues. Um, and, and I must admit, I found that with a lot of, um, other South African colleagues, uh, you know, in, in Unilever, that a very similar sort of mindset and, and reason why they've they've joined. So, um, yeah, I hope that gives some flavour, Raj. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it's it's a gift in a way to be able to grow up with that kind of a history, just because it uh, sensitizes you in a in a much deeper way. Yeah, to many things that others might take for granted. So, thank you mm -hmm. for that. And who have been some of the leaders that you've sort of admired over time? I mean, you, you're 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 in this interesting position. You you've you've run leadership development um, as a part of the future of work. You're going to be thinking about what kind of future leaders we need. Um, but I'm curious to you if you sort of look at a couple leaders who've really influenced you. Who would who would stand out in your mind as as you know? one, two, three people that might, you might look at and sort of say, yeah, they really had an impact on me. Uh, I'm going to start with our CEO, Alan Joe, but that's not because I'm sucking up, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's because I worked with him in China. So he was head of the China business when I was there and I had quite a close uh, working relationship with him. So I really got to see him you know, operating a day to day. And I'll just relate one quick story why um, I'll start with him and then, then I'll give you a, a couple of other leaders. But he has this unique ability to really uh, look after people, to, to really, when you're in his presence, he focuses 110% on you. And then at the same time, he has this amazing ability to scan the organization, scan external trends, know the strategic direction and bring people along uh, the journey. And there was one morning where I had to have a, a very early morning meeting with him. I had one of my team members joining me. We had to discuss with him a leadership program. We arrived at his office and he came from behind his desk with three cups of Starbucks uh, coffee saying, I stopped at the Starbucks on the way in because I thought you guys might need a coffee. It's such an early morning meeting. So again, just first thing, wow, he actually even was thinking about us. Then because he hadn't met uh, my colleague before, he spent about 40 minutes of our hour meeting chatting to her. She was a new graduate, newly into the organization, and 
so he just spent all this time learning about her, what she thought about the business, all that kind of thing. And then the last 20 minutes, he turned to me and said, right, Patty, quickly get through your stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we're going to go. But my colleague, I promise you, she floated out of that room. She, it was the best day of her entire life almost to, to that point that the CEO of the organization had been so uh, interested in, in her and she would have done anything for him after that. And I just thought that's uh, a really powerful leader who knows you know, uh, how to do that. And he's been very consistent uh, and, and authentic in that. So, so he, he's one. I think another who, who I've read a bit about and I haven't actually personally interacted with them, but I think they're in a similar space is Satya Nadella of Microsoft. Having read his book and understood, you know, his own family situation and, and he really gets, you know, vulnerability, being authentic as a leader, understanding where people are coming from. And if you look at what he's done for Microsoft, I mean, he's also an incredible uh, business leader. So I am picking sort of a couple of business leaders because that's my, uh, my space. Um, and then I think actually I go back to one of my teachers at school who really, again, invested a huge amount in me and, and invested in me believing in myself uh, and encouraging me to try all sorts of different uh, things. So he got me debating, which I never thought uh, I would e ever want to do, for example. But now I realize that's probably been my number one skill set uh, <laughs> that I've used throughout my life. You know, that critical thinking, debating ability has been invaluable. And so for a teacher to kind of notice that about you, that you'd be open to these things and, and invest like that, um, yeah, Mr. Robertson, thanks uh, if, if you're listening. <laughs> I love that. I know I went to an all-boys Jesuit school for high school, and we had debate class. And Dr. Curry told us, you know, when we were in the first year, he said, this will be the most important class that you ever have. And you'll take it every year that you're here, and you're going to hate it. But at the end, and you know what? They're so right, isn't it? That, that ability to, to really articulate and in front of other people, what's yeah. going on? Uh, yeah, I, like I think that that, that and negotiations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. So I'm really curious. You know, within Unilever, you know, you mentioned Tim Amundan, the 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 chief learning officer, and him bringing together other chief learning officers to to share some of the the goodness that Unilever has learned. Um, how do you see that playing out for you and your role of, you know, right now there aren't a lot of other VPs of the future of work, but I'm curious as to how, if at all, you see that evolving in terms of the outreach of Unilever to other organizations. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, we definitely can't do this on, on our own. Uh, and I think making these commitments public is also a bit of a call to others who'd like to join us uh, to, to please come along. And, and we can definitely share and learn. Everyone's doing, well, a lot of organizations are doing something in this space. Uh, I was actually on a call with uh, Danon uh, yesterday where they were sharing with me some of what they're doing. And there's some really cutting edge mm. thinking there. Uh, we're also working a lot through the World Economic Forum, uh, getting in touch with a number of different organizations there. And we've got a, an interesting collaboration going on at the moment with, with another uh, big corporate. Uh, I can't say too much about it yet, but where we're really looking at reskilling pathways 
mm. both within our own organizations, but also between our organizations. Ah. And it's been a fascinating uh, process to, to go through. But um, these sorts of partnerships, like I mentioned on the youth employment platform, yeah. even in new employment models, we, we really need to, to partner on all these things. We've got an employee sharing approach as well that we've been working with a few other corporates on. So General Motors in Argentina, we shared workers from one of their sites with ours when, when, when they were basically didn't have work and, and our factories were booming. We shared some of their, their factory workers. So there's lots of opportunity for corporates to get together and, and start collaborating more in these places because um, otherwise the risk is we have this kind of tragedy of the commons you know mm. that uh, we're all doing our own thing and then uh, people get be, get left out in, in the end so yes through this podcast as well sticking up my hand if you'd like to connect uh, and chat more about this how we can collaborate really really open for that yeah so patty what would be the best way for people to reach you if they wanted to find out more about what you're doing and how to connect with you uh, probably my via email, uh, maybe easiest, or LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well, but uh, patrick.hull, H-U-L-L, at unilever.com. Uh, that's the email address. It's Patrick. Um, that's what my mum uh, named me, but everyone calls me Paddy. Uh, but just so you know, don't send it to paddy.hull because it won't go anywhere, unfortunately. <laughs> So, Paddy, uh, you're such, uh, yeah, all of you really are at the cutting edge of this work in terms of uh, employment and uh, purpose and meaning and all of those. How do you stay at that edge? Are there, are there particular authors you follow or books that have inspired you to think in these ways? Or you know, what, what have you been absorbing uh, lately that our, our listeners would, uh, would value? Uh, one of the books that inspired me was Utopia for Realists by Rutger Bregman. Mm. Um, he's written a lovely book uh, where he talks a bit about, uh, you know, the need for a basic income. He talks about the need to move towards more of a kind of four-day week. Uh, and he also has an interesting perspective on um, uh, mobility of humans around the world because he asks the question, why do goods and services have no restrictions but humans uh, can't move uh, mm. so easily between countries and that sort of thing. And there's a big economic dividend to be had from that. So very interesting book, not all future of work, but really some inspiring thinking in there. And uh, in fact, I recently read his latest book called Humankind, which is also uh, uh, another different take on, on, on the world. So I enjoy books that uh, are making me think differently about uh, our current situation, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, so not just Rutger Bregman, but then, yes, I, I try and devour sort of um, an article, a TED Talk, a YouTube video, podcasts. Uh, um, I listen to the BBC Sounds uh, podcast quite a bit, and there's a few Future of Work ones that I dip in and out of. There's a great one actually by Harvard, um, on, on the future of work that, uh, in fact, Nick Dalton, my predecessor, he's contributed one, one of their shows. So, um, yeah, I mean, as, as you all know, there's, there's not an insufficiency of content out of there. It's working out what's the, what's the good stuff um, in, in amongst everything. So, so I also read a lot of stuff that I realize, okay, that's not helping me. So quickly jump onto, onto something else. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a never-ending quest, but, but an exciting uh, quest. Um, I actually also read some stuff by Ravine Jeswathan uh, the other day. He's quite a good thinker, uh, especially thinking about uh, the, the world where there's no longer job titles, but where you mm -hmm. just 
work in, in organizations. So, yeah. But, yeah. You know, in, in, my, in my framing, because my last book was called The Healing Organization, and I find Unilever to be uh, more and more emblematic of that, that thought, that business, normally business causes a lot of stress and suffering. Right? Heart attacks are higher on Mondays and people are disengaged and disconnected. And well, there's, a, there's a tons of data on that, right? Uh, but, but if you do it right, business can be a place of healing for those who work there. You can leave at the end of every day, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially uh, stronger and in a better place than when you came in that morning. Mm. And I think with all the work that you're doing and Lena, you know, that's happening, right? And then of course you can be a source of healing for your customers and your communities, and you can be a force for healing in society. And I think Unilever increasingly checks all of those uh, boxes with some depth. And I define that as reduce suffering and elevate joy. You know, that's, that's my definition of healing. And promote healthy growth, mm. right? Which you do through your purpose work and so forth. So I think if we are able to do that, then, then you know, work just becomes you know, incredibly rich, right? And, and powerful. So thank you for the role that you're playing and, and what Unilever is doing in that. Uh, thanks, Raj. I think that's a beautiful way of, of putting it. And in fact, you just reminded me, so one other person who's, who's been a bit of an inspiration, it's a Professor Nava Ashraf at uh, London School of Economics. She's doing some great work on altruistic capital, which also speaks a bit to what you're talking about, about how organizations have a role to play in creating an environment that helps people move more towards altruism and that actually people have a natural tendency towards altruism rather than being the selfish uh, kind of Adam Smith uh, uh, variety. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, fully agree. And uh, yeah, uh, I think the, the big thing is, as, as Unilever, you know, we need to keep delivering as a business so that we can really prove that this is how we can reshape uh, capitalism you know, as, as a force for good. So, uh, yeah, here's hoping that we can continue to deliver well uh, and good results as a business. Well, Patty, I love it. Uh, let's make organizations as human as the people that work in them and prove that that actually is the formula that works for the future. So thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to hear uh, in more depth and detail the, the great work that Unilever is doing. So thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me, Timothy and Raj. It was a great time. Thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners that are whatever channel you're listening on, remember there is a little button somewhere on that page that says subscribe. Uh, feel free to hit that if you enjoyed our conversation. And if you have any thoughts or comments for Raj and I, please go to theconsciouscapitalists.com conscious capitalists with an s at the end.com and there's a place there where you can leave us a message and of course if you want to read more about how to do some of the conscious capitalism thing you know Rajan and i have written a book called uh, the conscious capitalism field guide that's always a good source and raj if they want to know more about conscious capitalism where should they go you can go to consciouscapitalism.org and learn about uh, conscious capitalism, learn about chapters. We have about 40 in the US, about 18 other countries. Uh, get involved with, with the community. Uh, you will have discovered your tribe if you're listening to this podcast. All right. Love it. Thank you all very much. And we'll see you next week.